0: And I won't uh, uh, lay myself open to much more correction. I'd better let him get on his own. But anyhow, a friend of many, many years, an enemy part of the time since I was on the wrong side of the house, but nevertheless a friend for all that. And I'm looking forward, as I'm sure you are, to his talk on the birth of the world's first big
1: airplane, Sir Frederick.
2: Well, Mr. President and uh, ladies and gentlemen, I only hope that the records of the society are kept more accurately than the President has disclosed today. Do <laughs> you know, it's, it's very interesting that I joined this society in 1907, which is 54 years ago. And I read a paper before this society 50 years ago, 1911. One
1: of the real has-been.
2: Oh, yes. And uh, I remember at that time, the Aeronautical Society had uh, an office in um, Victoria Street. And I remember the first time I went there, because I got interested in this aviation racket, Hubbard, who was known as Toby, because his initials were something T. O'Brien Hubbard, Toby Hubbard, or Mother Hubbard, I think, was he more colloquially known as, uh, was the secretary. But the office, when I went there, was locked. And it was quite a time before I was able to meet anybody connected uh, with the uh, society. Now, it's only difficult for everybody here to cast their minds back to the time before they were born. I must admit there's a certain biological difficulty in doing that. But it is necessary to think of what was happening at that time, if you want to get a picture of how the how aeroplane design kind of sprouted and came to the fruition that we see today. When this question of flying first came up, the minister for war was Mr. Haldane, later Lord Haldane, and he was a man of immense foresight. And uh, he was a person who realized what had to be done. Unfortunately. For him, as for a great many people, which I'm sure everyone in the audience has felt, that if you are a very knowledgeable person, with great insight as to the future, and great capacity for judging things, and you tell other people what you are in that respect, you don't get well received. And uh, he wasn't very well received, but he started the Aeronautical Research Committee and on that he put a lot of distinguished people, and their reports, as you know, were uh, published in a series of volumes that are still available for reference today. And uh, out of that, Mr. O'Gorman, as he then was, later Colonel O'Gorman, took on the job of being in charge of Farnborough and Farnborough at that time was the balloon factory, a factory producing within its capacity a lot of gas. I'm not quite sure whether its activities have altogether changed. Well, I merely mention something of, of that to show the kind of atmosphere uh that there was way back in those far off days of nineteen hundred and seven when I joined this society. Now having spoken about that I'll now come to the question of the large aeroplane. And uh, the large aeroplane arose from a requirement that the Naval Air Service had in respect of their equipment. At that time, now I'm jumping a little bit farther forward to come to 1914, at that time the Air Department Admiralty, which was the air staff of the Royal Naval Air Service, was housed in offices over the arch, the Admiralty Arch, uh, which leads into Bell Mall. And they had a civil consulting engineer, Harris Booth. Harris Booth was, like many others, had come through the National Physical Laboratory, which has been uh, the kind of father of a great many distinguished people. So rather curious person was uh, Harris Booth, because when he arrived at the office, he promptly took his shoes off and put on carpet slippers. And, you know, when you saw him shuffling around through the offices, you realized that you have got to deal with somebody who evidently was a little bit original. Well, at that time, uh, and I'm referring now to uh, 1914, uh, after war broke out, uh, the largest size aeroplane was about 3,000 pounds all up weight. And uh, uh, Winston Churchill was then the first Lord of the Admiralty. And uh, uh, Commodore Mary Suter was in charge of the Air Department and his chief assistant was uh, Captain Schwann RN. And it was Commander Romney Saps- Sampson who, uh, serving on the uh, continent as a kind of general pirate going about with a, an armored car division, which didn't seem to be altogether integrated into the war effort. Anyway, he sent back to, uh, a Mary Souter, uh, the message that what they wanted out there, in the air, was a bloody paralyzer. That was his uh, requirement. He said none of these small uh, kind of aircraft were any, any good at all. Now, Winston Churchill, with great foresight and the great vision that he's always had, He said, we must have a big aeroplane. We must have big aeroplanes. Because uh, it's only by by having aircraft that are capable of carrying a lot of load and dropping it on the enemy that we are going to produce any effort from the air. And he uh, had a specification drawn up He said, now that is the kind of thing that we've got to do. Well, the big machine of which I'm going to talk, and um, you'll excuse me if I talk a little bit about our company's products, but after all, they're so good, I wouldn't want to, (laughs) I I, I wouldn't want to in any way to diminish your kind of uh, knowledge that I might give you uh, of what uh, they were. Well, this was the specification that they drew up, and it was communicated to me on Christmas Day, 1914. The specification called for a crew of two to be carried, and uh, uh it was to carry six 112 pound bombs and had to go into a shed uh, which was 75 feet by 70 feet, 75 feet, 75 feet square and 18 feet under the eaves. If you wanted to have a bigger span, 75 feet, you've got to have folding wings. And uh, the speed... It was not to be less than 75 miles an hour. And uh, it was to be fitted with two 200-horsepower engines. We had a great deal of argument in the small drawing office that we had about the way in which the power should be applied. Should we have two engines in the fuselage driving with chains out to uh, propellers on either side? And after all, power drive through chains, was no new thing in aircraft because, of course, it had been used by the Wright brothers a uh, long time before. Well, eventually, we put the two engines, one on either side, of the uh, fuselage in engine nacelles. Now, the wing loading was specified as not to be more than five pounds a square foot. And Harris Poole said to me, I'm not going to have any of these high loadings in which you land at a hell of a speed, and you generally break up or do something funny. Not more than five pounds a square foot. Well, so far so good. well, in order to get within the dimensions of the shed, we had to have the uh, wings folding. And that had already been done, folding wings, I think, on a short seaplane. Now the next interesting thing was that it had to be uh, protected by armor plate. Uh, because. After all, the only way in which reliable to be attacked is by rifle fire from the ground. And at three thousand feet, well, you'd be more or less immune if you had, uh armor plate. Now, in the, uh front of the aeroplane, and uh, perhaps I'd better have slide number one. Here you see, this isn't the original one; it's one of well, the later ones which has got to see a cockpit in the front there, the pilots, and then there's the gunner in the front. And in the original one, but the first one, in the, case, the whole of this, on the underside of the cockpit, was 10-gauge armor plate. And around here, on either side, was 14-gauge armor plate. And that was what we called the bar, because it looked exactly like a um, sanitary article. Then, uh, on the engines, there was a radiator which was stuck on the top of the engine cell, and there was similarly 14 gauge armor plate on the side, 10 uh, gauge underneath, and then as the radiator was up above the engine, you had a piece of armor plate 14 gauge on uh, either side. And that armor plate weighed approximately 1,200 pounds. That, in addition, uh, in addition to that, rather, on the part above the pilot's cockpit, there was a complete greenhouse in which the pilot and his assistant, the engineer,
1: uh, were housed.
2: For uh, protection, uh, the uh, engineer was given a rifle. And um, the pilot sat in a wicker basket chair and uh, if that was uh, fitted onto a uh, bench or cross a uh, piece of wood and above his head there was an opening in the greenhouse and protection was ensured by the uh, engineer standing up with one leg on either side of the uh with a chair, and he put his head up through the opening, and with his rifle, could bring his rifle to bear on anybody who attempted to attack uh, the machine. <laughs> Very simple. No equipment. No business of having sights and uh, homing devices and all the rest of it. Well, now let's have the next slide. I've brought some because This shows, there is the seat on either side, but I particularly wanted to show you the uh, the dashboard. (laughs) (laughs) On the dashboard there was an airspeed indicator, a rate of climb indicator, rather an unusual thing to have uh, at that time, and... uh, I suppose it was about six inches wide and about uh, two feet down. What a relief it would be to everybody in the aircraft industry if we could only compress the thoughts of today with those people who settle the operational requirements of aircraft and say, look, isn't that marvellous? If we going only bring to bear the outlook on aviation design and the prestige which old things had, like today you pay an an enormous price for an old master, which is considered to be much better than any new things. Anybody who wants to talk about old masters in aviation wants to come back to this. And there you get a very much easier thing to make than what we have got at the present time. Of course, it couldn't do what we do at the present time, because its speed was so slow and its various other characteristics, of course, long since been left behind. Next slide. That shows the aeroplane in side view. And you'll see again that it has the new type nose. This, as a matter of fact, as you can see, it's got civil markings on, was the uh, bomber transfer into a um, civil aircraft. And it was very greatly desired always to be, uh, for passengers to fly in what was previously the old gunner's cockpit. And you had a wonderful view and you could look right over the side and acres and everything else. I was Timed uh, over this thing and got into the front seat uh, because uh, I thought it was rather nicer than sitting beside the pilot. And now, uh, next slide, that shows the way in which the um, wings are folded back. You see they hinged about, the point on the back spar, uh, the top and bottom planes, and uh, enabled the aircraft to be wheeled into the sheds, uh, which were then available. And there you see it in the air. Now, we were faced with the problem of making something which was going to weigh in all 14,500 pounds, as against contemporary weights, probably of aircraft, weighing about 3,000, 3,500 pounds. Now, we had then to face a great deal of criticism as to the utility, usefulness, or otherwise, of an aircraft of this size and span. Because, it was pointed out, that there was a limit to which uh, you could make an aeroplane that carried a useful load and no less an authority than doctor Lanchester said in his book on aerodynamics that the probable weight in the future of any aeroplane would not exceed eleven hundred pounds. Well the reason for that It's not far to seek for that argument. (coughs) Namely that uh, the span of an aeroplane being increased you ran into weight uh, additions and it was probable that instead of having one big machine like this, if you had two or three smaller ones you would have a bigger percentage of load than what you had Uh, with the big machine. Now, in order to get over that, uh, we looked at such weights as were available of aircraft as a percentage, in their structure, of the all-up weight. It had been the kind of outlook of most people at that time that if you had a big machine, you could put more weight in here, more weight in there, And it was something that you could easily uh, forget about this weight. It didn't really matter. The consequence was, when the thing was uh, made, they were generally vastly overweight. The most conspicuous example of that was the aeroplane, which was a copy of the Sikorsky. It wasn't a Sikorsky aircraft. And that uh, eventually was assembled at North Holt Aerodrome. And when it was finally assembled, its all-up weight, its all-up weight, without any load on at all, was approximately the weight light that it was supposed to be, so that its uh, useful load was nil. And the interesting thing about that aeroplane was it was assembled after a long delay, assembled and got together at Northolt, and the day came when they started up the engines, uh, preparatory to a flight. But by that time it was stuck in the mud.
1: And believe it or not,
2: they got a steamroller and attached it to the aeroplane in order to pull it out of the mud. And Frank Courtney flew that. And hopped into the next field and then decided gracefully there wasn't much future in it, and he left it alone where it gradually disintegrated. (laughs) And now, uh, starting on the design of this aircraft, we had to keep within our five pounds a square foot, say, we had to keep
1: more or less.
2: That, um, we had a total, uh, wing area of about 1,500 square feet, and we were 14,000 pounds, so we were nearer 9 pounds a square foot. With little differences like that. Didn't matter then, any more than they matter today.
1: <laughs> <laughs>
2: and, um, uh, the, uh, we chose... An RAF6 uh, wing section because it had a good maximum lift and, according to the information that was available in those days, a very good L over D. How very different it is to choose a section nowadays in which you've got a whole lot of figures and everything else that defines character and so forth. The we made the uh, airplane with a span of the upper wing of a um, thousand feet uh, I beg your pardon a hundred feet and uh, a span of the lower wing of eighty feet and the cord was ten feet and um, uh, we had a very nice long tail nothing like having a long tail if you want to get fairly good control and stability. Some people do without the tail at all, but that uh, shows how the science has progressed. Now, uh, having settled on the percentages for each particular part, giving a total percentage for structure probably to the order of thirty-two, thirty-three percent or 34%, Uh, We then broke that down into the percentages for each of the components. And then we went uh, down trying to keep our components within that weight. Well, one of the first uh, things was to get a light wing structure. And to get that we tested out the ribs. And uh, uh, we had the ribs, to ten feet in cod, sported on two spars, and um, then loaded the rib up with little sandbags. No question of download or anything else entered in to disturb our faith in the ribs. All the Ah, the um, ribs were made with some vertical little uh, pillars and the uh, load was transferred back to the spars. Download? Oh, no, 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 no. And uh, we made various alterations so as to save every bit of weight that we could on the ribs. Uh, We similarly... Tested out uh, the uh, spars, because after all, the spars were something that were uh, uh, subject to loads, which were combined, endowed, and bending. Uh, then we came across the first real snag, was uh, when we had uh, to try and make the drones balanced. And we had a horn balance. That next slide, that shows it in the air. Well, uh, what we shall see, at least I hope we shall see, uh, is that we made the ailerons with a horn balance at the end, and the end of the upper plane, uh, the aileron came round and was a rather long, come to this thing uh in a moment the ailerons had at the end uh here was the end of the wing eh? and then the aileron was shaped like that forming the wing tip really of the uh wing and uh, uh balancing the load on the ailerons which should along here we had the greatest difficulty in fact found it impossible to make uh, that aileron overhang torsionally stiff enough. So eventually we cut off the balance piece and you will see on each one of these upper wings that there is no arm balance but a little bit sticking out uh, beyond the end of the wing. But this uh, is a picture of the cockpit, as it was, eventually decided upon and used. You'll see that more instruments have come in here. See, by this time the official authorities had begun to put all the Christmas tree equipment on the aircraft. You see the trend that is coming there. Next yes, that's to show the the way in which The structure in the fuselage was eventually designed, and that is it actually in the flesh. Now, having done all this in regard to the structure, our total weights came out such that we had pretty much the same structure weight percentage as the smaller aircraft had. That was only possible by reason of the fact that we were able to use our materials more efficiently. If you looked at the ribs of the B2C, which was designed by Jeffrey de Havilland at the factory, and was an outstanding heirloom, you found that the lath that formed the upper or lower member of the rib, was no thinner than the lath in our rib on this much bigger machine. In other words, there was a certain minimum size, below which she couldn't go, simply because of natural local strength requirements. And that same principle applied all the way through Enabled us to keep our weights down to the percentage uh, that we uh, wanted. One of the most interesting things, uh, well, there's the tail. Come to that in a moment. Uh, One of the most interesting things was the question of the undercarriage. Up to then, undercarriages had been sprung with shock absorbers, and the shock absorber consisted of (coughs) winding elastic rubber cord around uh, the axle and around the structure uh, on struts, which uh, projected from the fuselage downward. But there were no tests to tell you just how much each one. Uh, each one of these cards and so forth could take. And so we had to make uh, quite a research on the properties of elastic cord, And it was very interesting in the result. You found that uh, up to a certain point, as the load was put on, so the extension went up in proportion. After that, suddenly, the load you put on put on a, a lot more load, but there was very little extension and we eventually found that what in fact we were testing was at that point no longer the elastic extensions on the uh, the extensions on the elastic, but we were testing the load on the cup on the cotton which surrounded the elastic. And uh therefore we had to keep within the limits of uh elasticity. And similarly, we carried out tests on the struts, the spars, and a whole lot more. I refer again to the question of the um, the uh large members, and I come to deal with the, the tale. Eventually, on December the 17th, 1905, 1915 as you were, exactly 12 years almost to the day <coughs> of the first flight by the Wright Brothers, we were ready, and... Uh, all prepared for a flight at Hendon Aerodrome. It was a most classic kind of journey that we undertook from the sheds in the uh, Hero Road to the um aerodrome. The aircraft was, was built for the Naval Air Service and therefore we had Two gangs of naval ratings to haul the machine along. Great big hawsers, silent service, orders given in a hushed tone, mustn't reveal anything to the, air, the enemy. And at uh, Stag Lane, which some of you may know is a little bit to the north there, there was a whole what okay, the American calls a posse of police, who stretched across the road, stopped all traffic from coming down the edge of air road, and they had to go round Stag Lane and come out at a point a good deal further down uh, the edge of air road at Hay Hill. Well, with wings folded back, the aeroplane was dragged out of its shed. In those days, the size of the tyres... Created wonderment with everybody who came down to see us. Enormous tires they look. You don't think they're very big? Perhaps uh, thirty-inch diameter, something like that. I mean, total diameter. And uh, we put it outside the shed, and hop, huh, one of the tires blew up. <laughs> now, uh, at that time, the design of the tires was not so far advanced to the present time, and the, uh, outer tire was not in any way uh, secured to the uh, wheel to the rim. And the consequence was, as you went along, so the, um, tire itself moved a little bit around the rim and tore the valve and, pop went the tire. Well, we came out of the shed, and then we had to turn at right angles and go up a little bit of a ramp into the Edgeware Road. Well, we got as far as the ramp, and pop, went another time.
1: <laughs>
2: at last we got onto the Edgeware Road, and then we had a succession pops until we came to Fallendale Avenue, which you may know, leads down from the Edgeware Road to... Um, the aerodrome, and then we turned into the, um, into Cullendale Avenue. Well, uh, the Cullendale Avenue was the cause of a little bit of difference between ourselves and the North Metropolitan Gas Company, <laughs> because uh, the, uh, the gas lamps, and their columns, we're in the way of an aeroplane going down the road.
1: <laughs> so
2: we asked our resident uh, RNVR officer to request the uh North Belt Gas Company to take these gas lamps down. Well, it was quite a time after that. The Bet Spartan North Met Barton Gas Company. Preferred a claim against us for the cost of taking down and reinstating the lamps. We said we didn't ask you to take them down. <laughs> oh no, it was a naval officer, and eventually the Admiralty had to pay out. <laughs> <laughs> well, what was interesting was that we were then, I suppose, about. Uh, between 11 and 12 at night. Darkness. Although, occasionally, one or two of the people in the houses alongside saw a window go up, and an airy figure in white, looking out, who, when she saw the attention of those on the ground directed toward her, and not toward the aircraft, there was a sudden withdrawal. Now, the next thing that I found, going down, there was that there were various trees in these people's gardens, which equally well were in the way. So I called loudly for a saw and a ladder, and mounting the ladder, I saw down the top of the trees. <laughs> we had no claim in respect of that, I'm glad to say. And we arrived, actually, at Hindenayardodome, about five o'clock in the morning. That was about a week before uh, we uh, actually flew. Then, on the seventeenth of December, nineteen hundred and fifteen, the uh, aircraft was wheeled out of the shed. The um, wings were unfolded, the pins put in, everything was safe, and the engine started up. And slowly, this ponderous mass of aircraft, as it looked, trundled across Hendon Aerodrome, took off, slowly, and slowly came back at the game as the pilot throttled back. Now, I always remember the that thing because the RNV officer in charge, had an assistant, a petty officer. He was short and tubby and very naval. In private life, he was a chauffeur. But uh, nobody could have been more naval than he was. And as this thing trundled over and so forth, I just looked round, and this petty officer saluted me, drew himself up and saluted, and said, Ten minutes to two, sir. So I know that this first flight happened at ten minutes to two on December the uh, 17th. Well, uh, it was a little bit later than that that um, uh, Barrington, who was in charge of the um, whole business for the Admiralty, and was the pilot, Uh, and um, Lieutenant Commander Stedman was the engineer officer. Later he was in charge of the technical work of the Canadian Air Force. A little bit later that they made their first flight from the aerodrome down to Manston. Now as I told you this uh airplane At a greenhouse, on top of the um, by cockpit, so that they were completely enclosed. And they took off, and it was a misty day, and the first thing that happened was, the whole of the glass became shrouded in mist. So they couldn't see anything at all. Well, they flew on, and um, the uh, over the Thames, one of the uh, magnetos on one side of the engine, or four magnetas on one engine, gave up the ghost. And they had to fly on, on one uh, engine. Now, they're lighted, and then other <coughs> aircraft subsequently were delivered there, and um, various important decisions were taken, namely it was realized by that time that it was a stupid thing to carry some eleven, twelve hundred pounds of armor plate. So, the armor plate was scrapped, the cockpit was rearranged, and uh, a uh, scarf ring and this gun was mounted in the nose and then they commenced their trials <clears throat> well they hadn't gone very far before they ran into trouble the um, aeroplane here it was flown low say 70 miles an hour was alright once they got up to Seventy, seventy-two 72 miles now, there was a violent oscillation in the uh, tail. This kind of movement about the central fuselage axis. And according to Steadman's report, uh, the tail would move up and down some 9 or 12 inches in the air. Now I could hang on the end of one of these uh, it was a bi tail. tail. Uh, I could hang on one of the ends of that and went on the ground and it wouldn't deflect even under my weight, more than perhaps a quarter of an inch or something of that kind. And uh, this went on and uh, eventually uh, it was touch and go as to whether the Whole design
1: would go on.
2: Now, the uh, tailplane had elevators which had the same kind of balance, horn balance, as the ailerons, namely uh, something that I think you can see it here. Uh, the tailplane was there was the this was the tailplane, uh, who had a piece which came around on the tailplane, and that was the balance. And eventually I was given an ultimatum that you can do what you like with the aeroplane, but we aren't going to fly it anymore, as the service weren't going to fly it anymore until we got rid of this point. Now,
1: looking at it, now in after times, and sees so easily
2: where the thing went wrong, the elevators were operated by wires which hung rather loosely on the side of the fuse, large and were attached to two bloaters on either side of the uh cockpit and uh, uh the elevator up and down movement therefore uh was connected with the movement of the loiter on either side by this long and rather soggy wire. (coughs) Now, in addition to that, there were four elevators, one, two, on either side, and one, two, at the bottom. And there were none of them connected together other than through these wires right up to the front of the cockpit. Now, what happened? If, by any chance, you've got a movement set up of an elevator up and the elevator down, you would immediately get a wonderful bit of elevator flutter. Now, what did we do? Well, I thought we were rather asking for it to have the elevators so carefully balanced. And we had the balance portion of the horn cut off. Very easy to do these things when you've got wooden aeroplanes. And uh, you can do these things, you could do these things in those days without having to go to a local technical committee or any of these other kinds of things. And then we crisscrossed uh like cross bracing, we crisscrossed or cross braced the elevators uh one to the other. And then having done that, I got Jeffrey Prager, who was a freelance test pilot, to go and fly the machine and uh he flew it and dived it seventy five miles an hour. No less. And there was, the flutter had disappeared. It's quite easy to see why. The elevators moved in unison one with the other. And there was no excessive balance. After that, uh, things went very much better. The actual giving of the orders was rather interesting. After my meeting, In Christmas, Christmas Eve, or Christmas Day, with Harris Booth, we had no less than four of these aircraft ordered. Fancy. Nobody even wanted to buy one in those days, the most kind of things. We got four ordered. And in February of the year following, it went up to twelve, and then went up to forty. A damn good job it was that we had an order for 40. Because uh, I think it was Lord Charles Beresford in the House of Lords who said this was one of the biggest mistakes that suit had ever made in ordering these aircraft. And he'd like to see the whole lot cancelled. Well, they had committed themselves so much to this big order that they couldn't very well cancel anything. And by that time, of course, it was going fairly well. But it's interesting to know what the price of this aeroplane was. It was, that's the airframe, excluding engines and equipment, it was £6,400. £6,400. I don't know which firm would like to take on anything like that nowadays, but of course, that £6,400 was a good deal more in actual money than the £6,400 that uh, we have today. Well then, um, Babington established a training squadron at Manston with three of these machines. Stedman was the squadron's technical officer. Then the first lot went overseas late in 1916 two of them, to fly to the third naval wing at Luxai, near the entrance, near the Swiss border. Babington piloted the first to go, with sub lieutenant Paul Bucher and Stedman. An enormous journey of 400 miles. Bucher uh, had been on the staff of the Daily Mail and he wrote an extremely good poem about night bombing. I got a copy of it. I don't know where it's gone to. But um, it started something like, Night is our day and midnight is our noon. Putting the things all everywhere. Well, they got uh, on this first flight from Manson to Cape Greener. And Boulogne and on was to Paris, and they landed at Ville It was rather interesting, because they landed, and they ran into the railings. But, uh, not like some aircraft today, what happened? They carried the railings away. it. <laughs> it's the <exactly laughs> aircraft. Well, they went on from there to Luxor, and uh, there was no trouble before they got to Chaumont. The last aerodrome before their destination. But beyond that, the country was very bad. And they circled Chaumont, as they made up their minds as to whether to do the last 70 miles in the last hour of daylight, or land there. As darkness fell, the port engine started to pack up, and then the starboard engine started to give up the ghost. And so, Babington... Uh, landed the machine amongst the valleys and the crags there. And the machine eventually touched down safely on a very small, L-shaped field. As they landed slowly, of course, the run could be along one part of the L, and uh, the um, other part uh, <laughs> who turned around the corner. After staying the night in the village, the RNAS men patched up the aircraft and took all the equipment out and uh, flew it out of the field and they reached Luchstein about 10 minutes. The second one flew out there two weeks later. Well, then, uh, that was at the end of 16, at the beginning of 17, two of these aircraft left Manson and ran into thick cloud. One landed at Villa and the other, piloted by Lieutenant Verica with an observer, Ibert, landed behind the German lines to discover their position. It was rather interesting, because they were captured by the Germans, they thought they were behind the, uh, our own lines, actually, uh, they were behind the German lines. And one time when I was over visiting William Messerschmitt, I met a certain major browner. And he told me, Oh, it's very interesting to meet you. I said, Why? Well, he said, You remember that uh, uh, an aircraft, big aircraft of yours, was uh, captured by us. Now... I was in charge of the German troops at uh, the place where you landed. We saw this great monster come over, and I had all our lads get down in the ditch. And I said, "When you and I give the signal, you all run." Get that machine. So the machine came down, landed, and Verica and Hibbert, leaving the engines running round walked slowly across the field and one account says they went into the village and came back. But I was told by Browner that they walked across the field and he said, when I saw they were far enough from the aerodrome, I gave the signal and we all rushed after the people who'd got out. He said, uh got into the aeroplane uh, there was a trapdoor at the back and uh, uh i caught him by the seat of his pants and pulled him out and uh, then we took the aeroplane and i think that uh, uh they dismantled it and took it to Johannesburg where it was uh put together again and flown and again uh gossip says that they crossed the ailerons, or something like that, and uh, uh, crashed the machine. Um, So it wasn't much good to them. The interesting thing, I think, from the net capture was that it gave a very solid demonstration to the Germans that you could build a big twin engine machine like that, which... Was, uh, capable of carrying useful load. But then the next big, uh, flight was when Squadron Commander Savre, with McClellan the second pilot, and Engineer Rawlings, and Mechanics Adams and, uh, Cromack, flew out to, uh, the Near East, and, uh, with a view to bombing the German vessels that were there, the Goeben and Breslau, which were anchored off uh, Constantinople, they did a two-thousand-mile journey from Manston in nine hops across France, Italy, and the Balkans, and uh, uh, they had strapped down on the top of the fuselage spare propellers, and a whole lot more junk. Um, the uh, In going out there, uh, they found that they couldn't climb over the 8,000 feet mountains of Albania, but after they'd taken off all the equipment and uh, the light, uh, they left there and uh, reached Salonika in safety. And during month of June, they prepared for their raid on Constantinople. Because of headwinds, the first two raids were not successful. And on July the 7th, July the 9th, operation succeeded. The crew located the bourbon in Constantinople Bay. The bombs, the first bombs missed, but hit submarine. And then, just to make it a little bit more pleasant, they had a direct hit with the salvo, the four bombs at 800 feet altitude. But but to have a 112-pound bomb, 112-pound bomb topped on a battleship, was really chicken feed. And they couldn't hope to do much, as we now know it, with um, that weight of bombs. But... They uh, then flew along the Golden Horn and hit the Turkish War Office with their last pair of uh, bombs. And uh, the aircraft was hit by gunfire but returned to Lemnos on one engine. The return journey took seven hours. More than 600 miles covered during the raid.
1: Uh,
2: Well, after that, we had really reached the uh, point that the aeroplane was more or less successful. And um, eventually we carried something like 2,000 pounds of bombs and um, those were carried uh, vertically so that they dropped out and then turned over and then came down. It was, I think, Not exactly uh, what you call accurate bombing. But um, that was the way that seemed the easiest way of um, carrying out the dropping of the bombs. And uh, then a question arose that we had the rolls engines turning in opposite directions so as to avoid any torque. And uh, that, the Royal's people complained, was the cause of their taking longer than should have taken. Uh, And it would be a great improvement if we had both engines turning in the same direction. Well, uh, that we did, and it it flew quite as well with the two engines turning in the same direction. Really, we had them turning in opposite directions following the practice which the Wright brothers had, if you remember, when they had chains crossed on one side. To show you just the kind of thing that happened, that was, that's not the washing hung down here, but this aircraft was hit, as you can see, uh, very well by a uh, shell and came back home with all the fabric more or less stripped off one side of the wing of the aeroplane. I think this is another picture of the same thing. Fancy flying with that flapping about in the wind. Yes. And now, uh, just to carry on with the same type, at the end of the war, uh, the um, aeroplane was converted into a passenger carrier, take people, uh, take some of the British representatives uh, to Paris uh, to the peace conference. And you see the way in which the seating accommodation was arranged. And there's some more views of the same thing. That's the cabin in His Majesty's airliner, Great Britain. And that's one which was fitted up uh, to bring pilots backwards and forwards. because we had a lot of people taking over machines on the other side and brought them back and there you come to the thing transformed into a um, a civil airliner Uh, the bracing wires have been taken out of the interior of the fuselage and replaced by those uh, tubular struts uh, which you see And that's merely an illustration of the load being got ready to go in the aircraft. That's a somewhat similar kind of thing. Yes. And now, having dealt with the twin-engine machine, and that was built by a large number of daughter firms in this country, and was the an engine machine was also built in America by the Standard Aircraft Company. In accordance with true production methods, all the spars and ribs were packaged and put in one ship, and the other parts and so on, in different ships. But you only need to torpedo one kind of a convoy, and the whole damn lot of course are no use. <laughs> <laughs> That's actually what happened. And <laughs> now uh, turning from that, in uh, at the end of September nineteen seventeen, Sir William Weir, as he then was, was Director General of Munition Supply or Director General of Military aircraft, but I'm not sure which. Uh, asked me to come and see him, and General Pitcher, who was the head of the technical department, and uh, I saw them in the morning, remember at nine thirty, and uh, there's a great deal of humming and hawing that they wanted to build a big aeroplane which could fly satisfactorily six hundred miles out and six hundred miles back and carry about 6,000 pounds of bombs, And uh, we hadn't put pen to, a pencil to paper at the beginning of October 1917 and eventually this type flew, flew in April 1918. It's Rather quick work. Listen lesson to any of our people who are here this evening as to what I think they might endeavor to emulate in the way between the conception of a new design and getting it into the air. And during that period we had uh, We actually... Uh, I took a design team over to Horn uh, and and we actually uh, threw the whole thing out there with a lot of there to to help us. And the machine was built, the first one was built by Harlan the Wolf at Belfast. They had a strike and eventually we brought the aeroplane over in their parts to uh, Cricklewood, assembled it and flew it there. And uh, then we uh, had a catastrophe. The um, Aeroplane was flown by our pilot Busby and it had on board six people two in the tail because right after that uh, in the tail we had a tail gunner's place and uh, Alec Ogilvy who was in charge of the aeronautical section of the uh, Ministry of Munitions. Uh, he was in the tail and one other person. And Basby, uh, uh, for some reason or another, stalled the airplane, or rather, got into a spin over Golders Green. And it crashed there, and everybody except Alec was killed. One of the unfortunates was the man who was then. Secretary of the Aeronautical Society and been seconded to the Ministry for a special instrument work. In spite, however, of that accident uh, orders were given out for a hundred of these aircraft which were made which a certain number were made, I should say. group of three of these B-1500 were ready at Bertram Newton on the east coast to go to bomb Berlin but by that time in uh, September of 18 peace negotiations were already on the way and therefore the bombing of Berlin was held over Probably all for the best, because they probably wouldn't have reached there. So uh, uh, you can at least say that that's what it would have done. Then, after uh, the war was over, the, one of these, one of the twin-engine machines, was flown from Egypt out to Calcutta, and then the four-engine machine was flown out to um, Calcutta from this country. Uh, The um, pilot was little Jock Halley. He was quite small. It seems to be a kind of qualification. If you want to be a good fighter pilot, if you want to be uh, a good bomber pilot, you shouldn't be more than probably five feet, two. Very extraordinary, the way it's come out in that red. And so, they flew through uh, to um, India. And when they were, got to India, the um, <laughs> Afghan war broke out. And so, they decided that we ought to go and have a crack at Coral. Well, Hale flew out on the, um, on the uh, V-1500 and dropped a 112-pound bomb on uh, the um, walls of the Harim. Uh, as the said to me, thus striking. A thunderous blow of female, anticipation, uh, female emancipation in Afghanistan. But the further thing that happened was what happened after. They flew for a short distance and one engine packed up. And so they were flying down valleys, hoping to get down to, out of the mountains. And then another engine packed up. And eventually uh, they landed uh, with two engines only. And uh, uh, the final fate of that aircraft was it was all dismantled and the fuselage was used as an officer's office. And that was the final result of what they did. Another view of it. There it is flying. And you can see if you've got a, a top and bottom span equal, and there is the biplane tail. That's another view. Not bad for 1917. Then we come on to the uh, things, some of these developments of um, uh, civil aircraft developed from the 400 This was W8 used by Imperial Airways. And this is rather interesting because uh, the different types it shows the number of Draftsman Weeks that we have taken. <laughs>
1: 300
2: Draftsman Weeks on the original twin and 295 drawings. On the four-inch machine 600 Draftsman Weeks and 2,000 drawings. On the Hampton, uh, 2,364 draws and weeks, 8,000 drawings. Arrow, 2,500, 7,000 drawings. And Halifax, 8,320 drawings, uh, uh and weeks, 13,000 drawings. Those are figures of draws weeks and drawings issued up to the time of first flight what it's like in regard to the victor or something like that, God alone knows.
1: <laughs> <laughs> and we're getting very close
2: to the time when uh, figures might be of use to others than ourselves. So we can't say very much more. And that's the old Hannibal. That was a, a very good aeroplane. Not I mean that it was better than any others, we turned to. And Ah, that's the, uh, Victor.
1: <laughs>
2: Put in to show that we've made some progress since 1917. Oh, and that's the, uh, Herald. <laughs> what is very interesting today in the field of civil aviation is that we have been very much in the atmosphere of the racing motor car, the Ferrari, the Maserati, the Lotus and the Cooper, and we ought to be getting away from that idea of the who can fly the fastest and so forth, to the case of who can make the most efficient aeroplane from the point of view of a money spinner, and what is the best aircraft for the job. I think we better have the next slide, and leave you to ruminate on what was. That is um, uh, the 117, which is a laminar flow uh, project, Uh, and uh, that is of interest, as showing the way in which, the way in which uh, future development is likely to go. One thing, if you look at the series of these airplanes, or airplanes made by anyone else in the aircraft industry, one thing must strike you that all the way through there has been an endeavor to reduce head resistance. All the way through you have found people designing more carefully within the same kind of percentage of the weight or even improved structure weights, but with a diminution in resistance all the time. And one thing I think is Very important in regard to jet-driven aircraft, which isn't very much referred to, and that is in comparison with the piston-engined aircraft, which has to be cooled by air going over the cylinders and has resistance drag. You get rid of that, to a very large extent, uh, on the jet. And that's another thing in its uh, favor. Ladies and gentlemen... That's the kind of how the thing started, so far as we are concerned with the big machine. And a um, thing that really vests itself in my mind is the way in which difficult problems, considered difficult in the mess, were rendered easy, easier. To solve when the big problem was split down into its components and each kind of component problem settled on its, its own. And uh, it was doing that in the first with our original twin, the 3400, that I think we are able to make it successful. And I think Mr. President, ladies and gentlemen, You've about heard enough from me on this subject. Thank
0: you. Ladies and gentlemen, that's been a a very fascinating time, at least for me, and I'm pretty sure for many of you too, listening to the account of those older airplanes in the older days. Now, uh, Sir Frederick has said that he will very kindly uh, answer any questions. We can't really uh, call it a discussion. It's uh, not a subject for discussion, but I'm sure that many of you, uh, just as I, have one or two queries which we'd like to put to Sir Frederick, and for at least a short time, I hope that he'll bear with us and help us. And can I claim privilege in asking the first question. Uh, Sir Frederick, um, you mentioned that the 0400 was taken up to Hendon. At what date did the airfield at Cricklewood go out of action? Oh, uh, at that time we
1: had
2: got our present works at Cricklewood. We hadn't got it. Uh, Cricklewood then consisted of playing fields fields only and on the side of the road where our works now are if I may say so a sight hallowed by tradition <laughs> uh, uh, there were two houses two houses only and the whole of the property was the property of the ecclesiastical commissioners and they were raised that they wouldn't allow any development to take place there It was only under the stress of war in 1916 that the Ministry of Munitions decided to uh, take the place over and build the works. We had rather one amusing thing and that was the works at Cricklewood were put up by the Ministry of Munitions and we in the course of Trying to keep as much of the building off the aerodrome as possible, infringe the local building line as laid down by the bylaws, and uh, they, uh, the Hendon Council representative, arraigned us before the courts for infringing the building line. We didn't say anything. We allowed them to go ahead with the case. May came to court, our counsel said, are you suing the right people? My clients aren't in any way responsible for these buildings. They're being put up by the Ministry of Munitions. <laughs> and, uh, the whole case collapsed. Uh, it wasn't a very sensible thing to do because it didn't make us, at that time, very popular uh, with the local council. However, uh, time obliterated that, and we're now very good friends. Thank you very much. One thing that everybody designed in those days was a fuselage clip, which went at uh, like that, round the spar, and had two wires that went up, the main bracing wires, and one across bracing thing here. Now, in order to reduce weight, we cut down the size of the clips by Having the spars, lenticular in section, I think it is, coming down to a very narrow bit underneath the strut, and then, in the proper fashion, uh, being larger in the middle of the span between that and the next strut. But, at that time, we weren't aware that, whereas you could probably, the stand-alone spruce, Eight thousand pounds a square inch along the grain, at the right angles of the grain, it was something more like 1,000 pounds a square inch. And the consequence was the first fuselage we made uh, with this peculiar shaped uh, fuselage long, The end of the, the fuselage truss went into the longshorems. And we had to get over that by, of course, making the uh, Lingerons, uh parallel, all the way along. Even in those far-off days, we had modifications. <laughs> that's, one the, that's one of the things that we haven't uh, lost. And uh, when it came to this question of flatter, uh, I think Bersot had a hand in it as well. Yes. yes. And uh, we boxed the side box the sides and up top and bottom of the fuselage with three ply so as to tre- strengthen it torsionally and none of the alterations in uh, torsional stiffness or so on any good what one had to get at was the root cause which was the uh, freedom of the uh, elevators to oscillate about the center.
0: Well gentlemen. I have a feeling we've imposed on Sir Frederick quite enough for one evening. It's been a long evening for him, but a wonderful evening for us. I think that uh, I could expand a great deal, but I'm not going to, because I think that you can well show how much you have appreciated by your uh, approval of my thanks to Sir Frederick. Thank you very much indeed.
2: Thank you, Mr. President. There's so much more one could talk about and go on forever, including the time when I was one of the members of the Revolutionary Committee that threw the council out. (laughs) The council was a a relic of, oh, Victorian times. The chairman was a man named E.P. Frost, who lived near Newmarket, and uh, at Baden-Powell, and a lot more, and uh, certain of us felt that no progress was being made, and we ought to get rid of the council, a proper election. Oh no, said the council.
1: We are there,
2: self-appointed, and here we're damn well going to stay. So, uh, it was most interesting, this took place, the old uh, theatre of the Royal Society Arts. And uh, we broke the meeting up in confusion. Absolutely. Most interesting.
1: <laughs> and, and then
2: then we uh, had uh, changed the organisation, had fellows and associate fellows and so forth. And that was in 1910,
1: I think.